before we begin the uh, the topics of this episode, I kind of want to just acknowledge some of the new patrons that we've been getting. Um, most of them we can't we shout them out towards the end of each episode, especially if they're of a certain uh, tier or subscription group. Uh, but we've been getting some newer ones, which we are wholly thankful for that we get any patrons really. Um, so I like to acknowledge uh, Mike Sherwood, Eric Shaw, uh, Kyle Keir, and Nordia King. Who was actually on an episode with us <laughs> coming up soon? Thank you all for your patronage and your support. And we definitely could not do any of this without you guys uh, supporting us both uh, financially and giving us topics to talk about and sharing all our stuff and just giving us ideas to keep on going. And giving us the hope to push on. Yes, most definitely. We suck. You guys don't suck that bad. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's do another episode. <laughs> well, especially in our Discord. Like, if you, uh, anyone out there, you can join us and and chat with us on Discord. Like, less than it takes to buy a, a bottle of water a month. So, and our our conversations vary. It can go into topics about the show. It can go about topics about the comics themselves. Um, some stuff you're going on at work. If you have any cool pictures that you're able to share, both in and outside of work. Um. There's been a couple. There's two of uh, our patrons who are active on Discord that show us like their their grilling expertise, and I'm quite jealous to be honest. Um, like jerky, homemade Salivating. bacon. Yeah. And I was like, oh, love this. and some of them they'll, they'll tease me on purpose. Like, look what I made this weekend. Like, oh. oh yeah, well look what I didn't make. Cup ramen. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Maruchin? Well, yes, it is. Thank you for noticing. Yes. So, by all means, uh, if you guys want to have more in depth or longer and all sorts of conversations with us, have uh, talk to us directly, individually. Uh, looking more to do like lives and stuff. Uh, join us on Discord through our Patreon. As little as one dollar a month. That's really all it takes to get on pa- our Discord channel. And then again, to all our patrons, thank you so much for your support. We would, we definitely appreciate all of it and we would not be doing it especially not for you and news at 11 (laughs) (laughs) so finally we're going to do a little discussion on uh, a subject that one of our patreons has uh, been requesting for some time sorry about the delay Uh, we're going to talk about aerial firefighting now it's some might think, right, by the time this episode comes out, it's going to be cold and stuff. But there are certain areas in the country that are way more dry than others, especially during the fall and winter seasons. Like, yeah, it's cold, but now it's just dry. But it's still prone to catch fire, especially like in the West Coast areas like California or um, Arizona, Nevada. Yeah, it's cold, but it, that just means stuff is dry and it's still likely to catch on fire. So. With that said, I mean, fire air, aerial firefighting is a very, it's a very layered uh, industry. And it's usually headed up by the U.S. Uh, Forestry Service. And then it has your own state regulatories and stuff and whatnot. And then you have private companies who assist or aid or provide small aerial firefightings for the regions they're in. And a typical company or a division will have as much as 20-some aircraft, and they vary between helicopters to DC-10s and other heavies 
or heavy lifting aircraft that it's fitted to to release fire retarding agents. Fire retarding, he says. <laughs> <laughs> or or like uh like with hot wings when she used to work on fire bosses, the ones it looks like little floaters that suck up water from a nearby lake and then they dispense it. Yeah. So talking about those, uh a couple years back, remember when we had the big uh bobcat fire here, six? Yeah. Remember it was raining ash on us at work? Yes. Well, here where I live, we have a, a big man-made lake, and uh, Forest Service called down their their friends and brothers up in uh, and sisters up in Canada, and they brought down those. Um, what did you just call them? Uh, fire bosses. The fire bosses, yeah, and they would come. I mean, right over top of the freeway. I felt like they were going to land on the freeway. But they would come right over top of the freeway, over top of this parking lot, hit this lake, scoop up a bunch of water, take off again, and head towards the mountainside and dump all that water. So it was kind of cool to see them coming and doing laps and all that. So uh, big thanks to, uh, to our Canada friends for, for helping us fight the fires that were pretty close to home here. I'd say. Yeah, no kidding. Appreciate that so much. And especially when it comes to aerial firefighting, it's such a concerted effort to get the, get fires under control, especially when you involve aerial, because with aerial, there's so much stuff that goes into it. You got to have the aircraft itself to be, capable to fly for one and then to also be able to, to dispense the rele- the fire retarding agents where there just be water with a mix of some kind of gel or fire agent or just straight fire agent which is like this reddish orange looking thing it kind of looks like they're spraying like um, yeah what's fire- crazy is when you go hiking through these burned areas after i mean a year after the fires happened or whatever you can see the ground is still stained a little bit with that purple pink orange whatever um uh, retarded they've used yeah and contrary to popular belief like um aerial firefighting the intent of that is not to put out the fire i mean if if it's small enough they totally can but the intent of it is just to to keep it from spreading right yeah and then the ground crews themselves will be able to uh, fight the fire or just kind of surround it enough to choke it down which is typically bad in certain areas where they're dry and it's super windy uh case yes. in point is that's where the hot shots come in. Yes. Uh, and then some uh, National Guard or uh, Air National Guard units have uh, drones that are capable of helping the aerial firefighters. Like they have like uh, infrared sensors that can sense the hot spots so they know where to like choke them off better or, or create fire breaks so it doesn't uh, shoot yeah, off into can. other areas. Yeah, they do like a buddy lazing system, right? So if there's a lot of smoke and the plane's got to fly through the smoke, they use those IR sensors and track a laser from another aircraft and just that laser will guide them right to where they need to go, even through the smoke. Right. Um, that's in the, in the atmosphere. Right. And, um, and again, so the idea of it is to not, I mean, if they can fight it, say like with these, uh, they call them Bambi buckets where it's, it looks like a, like a reverse parachute really made out of rubber or uh, some other heavy canvassing material where they scoop up water and dump them kind of like the fire bosses. Um, but for the most part, like their sole purpose is to contain them or keep them from spreading as far as possible. So the ground crews can do their thing. It sounds pretty dangerous. Not going to lie. There's some, there's some pretty, uh, inherent danger to you doing aerial firefighting. But again, like the idea is to contain it enough and everything it's spread into about 20 into different regions that again, it's all being controlled by the U S forest service and, and the state and whatnot. Well, think about this danger alone. You're flying 200 feet off the trees. That's very true. 
as people are like, oh, that's 200 feet. I'm like, eh, it's, that's low. Especially if you're, if you're flying, like, especially here in SoCal, when you're flying in the, in the mountain range stuff, I mean, 200 feet of varying terrain, eh, that ground comes and goes pretty, pretty quick, you know? Oh yeah. And, and especially when you're, you know, your normal operating height is anywhere from five to a thousand plus feet. And sometimes these fires can go just as high as that, right? So you got, you got to go like much higher than that just to keep yourself, can, uh, keep yourself safe for one. And then somehow manage to contain the fire. And uh, I'm not going to lie. When I first heard about aerial firefighting and I thought like, oh, that's a smart idea. You know, just dump water onto the fire. But if it was just straight water, it will evaporate before it even touches the ground because of how hot the fire is burning. Like, so I can't remember who it was that told me that, but I'm like, well, that makes freaking sense. I was like, always wondered about that. And then I think it was Hot Wings and then one of our patrons that told me like, oh, they actually mix stuff into the water. So it's not just straight water that hits the, the fire. I'm like, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that makes a whole lot of sense. <laughs> so I wonder if those, in those air bosses, then they scoop up the water out of the lake. And then I wonder if there's a separate tank on the inside mixed with the, the retardant. And then an auto, you know, okay, you hit a button and an auto puts two quarts per however many 200 gallon of water or something like that of fire retardant. Um, yeah, well, I want to say, yeah, say Hot Wings mentioned that. Like, uh, I'm not sure if it's a tank or if it's in there already. And then as the water comes in, it mixes. Uh, right. Well, let's say you're making multiple passes, right? Mm-hmm. So how how much is in there, right? How many passes can you get? With whatever fire retardant mixing agent you have on board. Oh, gotcha. I see what you mean. You know what I'm saying? So if there's not a tank or it's like, okay, before I take off, I put in the the water tank, uh, two gallon of fire retardant. I go and scoop it up out of the lake and I dump it on the fire and then I come back and scoop it out of the lake. But if it was already in the tank to begin with, all that retardant's gone. So where am I getting more from? That's true. Yeah. I wonder, like, once they once they dump their their uh, their water or the water fire agent mix, that they would have to land to refuel the thing. That's a good one. No, I don't think so because I remember sitting there watching those air bosses. You could see them from the parking lot next to the lake where they were scooping up. You could watch them fly over to the hill mountainside, dump water. You could see them watch them come back around the pattern and hit the lake again and go back around. Ah, oh, that's a really good one. Uh, our page, our patron out there, and anyone else who is in aerial firefighting, please excuse us if we're sounding really retarded about this. But again, like this is something that's very layered, and it's it's typically not a field that we're in. And this is all based off the experiences that we have seen, and then some of the stuff you guys were able to divulge to us without giving too much information, right? Because you, you know. yeah, you know, uh, it's interesting, and and think about yeah, and the whole aerial firefighting is very interesting. But here's where my brain goes when I think of aerial firefighting water the retardant chemical all that stuff man that corrosion inspection has got to be hellacious oh totally i can only <laughs> imagine how much that would be like that's what i think about I'm like man this thing put out fires and my whole thought is like because i'm the one back in the hair going man when i think it's back i gotta gut it again <laughs> <laughs> you know right on the plus side though like if you are working for a aerial firefighting agency you're going to be doing a whole lot of traveling, <laughs> you know, because I mean, I, I'm not a hundred percent on the size on all of it. Right. But say like a fire gets so big, right. And that, 
particular region doesn't have enough uh, people or enough available aircraft around, guess who's flying over there, right? Yeah. <laughs> request for more people to show up or more support to show up. That, that's, that's one of the things that I, I, I have noticed, especially one of our patrons, he's been mentioning, like, I travel from here to here. He boun- he's bouncing all over the place. And I'm like, damn, that's a lot of travel, man. I'm like, well, I landed in Nevada. Oh, okay, I guess who's flying to Florida tomorrow? Like, dang, guy. But I guess, you know, you got to go wherever the, the plane's going and the plane goes wherever the fire's at. So it makes a whole lot of sense. Yep. But, and interesting. Then, that is interesting. But again, if for everyone out there listening, if you have some uh, more insider knowledge on aerial firefighting and what all that entails, at least from like a day-to-day basis, when there's actually a fire versus when there's not, because I figure when there's not a fire, it'd be kind of like the fire department guys on the ground. Like, uh, you just spend time doing service and maintenance, maybe maybe get some workout going on, uh, some some regular routine training just to keep you guys sharp, and day in, day out, same old same until you guys get the call to go hit up a fire. That's what I would assume anyway. It's not like, uh, I don't know how active fires are daily. I mean, I'm I'm sure there's like there's a fire somewhere everywhere that can use uh, yeah. forestry control, especially if it's controlled burns, right? And I think that's where majority of them come from is controlled burns get out of hand and then they start uh, trickling to other areas. Now, as a fire bomber or helo or fire aerial firefighting mechanic do you also have to be a trained firefighter uh i believe uh at least from one of our patrons uh agency or his company they don't necessarily they're just strictly mechs uh and they just they just go do the maintenance on the planes and then they leave the rest up to the air crew who's actually doing the flying so i think um i think for the air crew themselves they would have to have some kind of firefighting experience or some kind of um how do you call it? first responder uh, training just because of how close they are in proximity to an actual fire. Right. But uh, I think for the mechs themselves, now again, this is me just basing off of one or one Patreon. And then uh, for what little I have seen that it's kind of like with uh, one of our patrons and our former guest Frush with uh, EMS. Like I just do strictly planes and whatever EMS training I get, it's just osmosis. <laughs> you know? yeah. Now, do are the aircraft required to have firefighting equipment on board? Now, I don't mean fire bottles and stuff for the engines and whatever else. I mean, like, do you have shovels, pixes, or pixes, picks, axes, um, uh, f- firefighting gear, almost like the jacket, the overalls, whatever, in case you somehow have to land in a field because of some malfunction, right? So you got to find the closest place to land and you're out there. So it's like, well, the plane's effed and we're not getting it out of here right now. So let's put on our gear so we can at least survive the fire if it gets too close or we can go help fight the fire while we're out here or, you know, or, or is the hot shot your, your rescue when they come in. So now that would be an interesting an interesting thought going with the does the mechanic have to be the firefighter and all this and that what if you were a mechanic slash hot shot and you got you know you got one of these uh air bosses and they go down 
engine failure and it lands in whatever lake and they motor to the to the side uh do, do you as a mechanic can you become a hot shot parachute in to this remote lake and help fix the plane and take care of it but also fight the fire if a fire gets too close to the lake or whatever else you know like how does that how does that happen how do, who who goes out there and fixes it if that's the case so i'm thinking remote canada right Right. Uh, I know they got some fires and uh, big fires and stuff that go on at that uh, out there. Or let's say even in the outback, they get those massive bushfires in the outback of Australia. Mm-hmm. So, but let's go with Canada. Big lakes and stuff out there. Air bosses going out scooping up water out of out of these old glacial lakes. Uh, going dumping the fire. We get engine one failure. Okay, well let's land it on the lake because we're we're not going to make it back to wherever the airfield's at from here. Right. Uh, and there's no real open because it's all forest, thick, dense forest. The only thing we got to do is land on the lake. Um, does a hot shot come in, parachute in off of another bomber, a fire bomber heading out to the fire and he parachutes in and fixes your, fixes your aircraft for you on the spot or how does that work? That's kind of, that's, That'd be a that's a that'd be a very cool job, very romanticized job. Right. Like, what do you do? Oh, I parachute into remote locations as a hot shot, but also to fix broken fire uh, firefighting aircraft in in the remote uh, up country. You know. Yeah, totally. That kind of reminds me of uh, pararescuers. You know what I'm talking about? Like uh, for the U.S. Air Force, like yep. uh, they're like combat medics, but they're also like basically special forces like oh i go in to i parachute in in hot zones just to treat uh patients and then yeah. and then fish them out like fuck that sounds pretty yeah. pretty bad. i can murder you in six different ways but also know how to treat each each wound <laughs> right you know? but imagine saying that vice versa right as a hot shot uh mechanic like i parachute in i fix your shit and then but i could also fight fire like a special forces dude <laughs> yeah That'd be that'd be yeah, pretty dope. That's, a, that's pretty interesting, actually. Um, yeah, you're jumping in with the remote, you know, firefight equipment, but a remote kit of tools. That'd like, be some wild shit, honestly. That would be some <laughs> wild stuff. But then, if you need a part or whatever, like how you get parts, maybe another float plane flies out, delivers you what you need because you relay what you need back to base by a sat phone. I don't know. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure those these are like some pretty rare cases, but it, I'm like again, the chances can happen. And I'm if for those of uh, you out there who are in an aerial firefighting uh, arena, and especially stuff like this where MVP was talking about with hotshot uh, emergency rec- rescues or emergency reclamation, like uh, what what's the procedures? What's the steps? Like oh, like are are we off base? Like just we'll never bingo into the field where there is a fire if we can if we can avoid it or. Or what, you know, just let us know. I'm, I'm all about that. And I'm curious as to know, like, what, what are some of the day-to-day stuff with aerial firefighting more than what we see uh, in our daily lives and more than just the mechanic side? Like, what's the, the air crew uh, side of the house on this one? And then from the ground talking to the air and, and stuff like that. Well, I mean, think about it. You, if you were, man, this is really fun to talk about, actually thinking about being a, a paratrooping firefighting mechanic. Holy yeah. shit. This is this is actually very intriguing. And I'm sitting here going, man, I, I'd love to do that. My fat ass trying to do that. Jesus Christ. 
Um, uh, but think about it, like that would be you would almost be a combat controller, yeah. like you were just saying. You'd be a combat para paramedic mechanic. <laughs> you know, paramedic mechanic. Hell yeah! <laughs> uh, you got a parachute in. You got your tools with you. You got to know how to fight fire, but you also got to know how to. You're out there. I mean, there's no ATC out there, so you got an ATC fire bombers going overhead versus ones that are fl- flying in parts to you. To oh man, that's that's wild. Okay, Matt, I'm pick. I'm as you're talking about this, I'm picturing like a guy like Rambo, right? But instead of machine guns, it's like pneumatic tools, like portable pneumatic tools. <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah. instead, instead of a backpack full of bullets, it's like a giant pneumatic air cannon. He has like hoses with pneumatic tools on it. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, would you have to fly? I mean, would you, gosh, would you have to have a small generator to power a compressor to power your tool or, or, you know, like, I'm just thinking of all the intricacies of this. Like, how would this really work? Right. And if it isn't, we should make this happen. Right. <laughs> could go fight fire anywhere you, you can know, land them, anywhere them girls from elevate were talking about talking about starting their own thing but uh you know this might be this might be you could t- tie this in with that with the, i won't i won't give away what they're what they're talking about doing which is an excellent idea by the way ladies so i hope you go through with that but maybe tying a little firefighting aspect too you know what i'm saying right uh but especially cool. in areas like you mentioned like with canada with uh those uh those bushfires and, and having the glacial uh, lakes to actually fight the fire. It's like a, it's like a lose slash wind scenario. You know what I mean? Especially with areas like Canada where that's heavily forested. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, what was her name? Um, was it, uh, Cassandra? Oh, Cassandra. Was it her? Was it Cassandra? Yeah. The yeah. one she was up there and she was working around polar bears. That was her, right? Yeah. That was Cassandra. Yeah. So now she's got to also get, uh, Zoology degree because now she's got to train them polar bears on Facebook. <laughs> like you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Kidding, kidding, Cassandra. I'm just making fun of it. But uh, but for on the on the reels though, this is very interesting to talk about, uh, and I would like to know how to put that together because that seems fun as fuck. Can you, can you imagine uh, the recruiting commercial you can spin from this? You know what I mean? Like uh, it sounds like some Call of Duty. Special Forces, Delta Force, Navy SEAL stuff, and then at the very end, they join the U. They join the Forest Fire Service. Like, well, well okay. yeah, I mean, that's it, it. Could be the U.S. Forest Services. It could be their 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 Special Forces. You know, right? That'd be pretty. We can call ourselves, uh, and then yeah, their 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 unit name would be Smokies. You know, Smokey the Bear. <laughs> right, like I can pre- only you can prevent forest fires. And then there's me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That'd be freaking pretty dope, actually. We, we should actually come up with a comic for this. That'd be pretty dope. Hey, what do you guys think? Like, uh, for all you guys listening of all this crazy, um, ingenuous ideas that we've been talking about, like, would you guys be down to see a comic like that? Let us know. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be pretty dope. Let's start talking about this. We'll, we'll, we'll storyboard this. <laughs> R- Ramble the, the freaking... Um, the combat fire mechanic. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that would uh, be dope. That would be. On a, on a probably less serious note. Or le- uh, less. Uh, yeah, I guess serious. 
is uh, with the, we were talking a little bit earlier about fire season and the season itself. If we is starting to shift toward getting cold again, and there, there's been some areas that MVP and I have been to, and I'm sure a lot of have too, where the temperature can really swing on you. Like it's like blazing, sweltering hot one day and then give it like two weeks or so later the the season changes and then it's freezing cold like all the time. And and it can change daily, right? Like it's it's super hot in the daytime and then night nighttime comes and it's now you're like uh, keeping your oil and stuff inside the hangar just so it doesn't congeal because it's too cold outside. You know what I mean? Yeah. Hey, real quick, before we jump into the cold season, <clears throat> I want to touch back on this aero firefighting. So they're okay. saying the average tanker costs six thousand dollars per hour to operate. That's actually less than I thought it was going to be. Oh yeah. Uh, the retardant costs about three dollars a gallon, and if you're dropping three thousand gallons per drop, that's nine thousand dollars every time they drop. That's crazy. That is crazy, and especially when they're getting the water from a lake <laughs> or supposedly a body of water. We're well, hoping a body of water. Right. But then again, they were talking economic or ecological impact. So I could understand the, the price tag on that. Yeah, can you imagine being a fish just swimming along and scooped up? I'm like, where the hell? Where the hell am I? It just got dark all of a sudden. And, all, and then all of a sudden, you're just like, where, why is there light? Where am I? Oh my God. Ah! <laughs> I, wonder, fish. I wonder if there are filters like that, you know, when it comes to sucking up the water so they don't ingest stuff. And I, I would, I could I would almost have to. Th- think there would be because what if they're in a i mean it has to be a big lake so for the chances of there being a log way out in the middle where the plane's going to be just below the surface pretty narrow but not impossible mm-hmm. so if there's a big log like say a big old massive tree that's kind of petrified under the water there just below the surface that plane's flying along and it and it's almost like a, a spear right yep a spear and it just juts up in that belly. That plane smacks that thing. Like, could it? Can it rip the the door off the bottom? Is the bellies of those planes up armored a little bit to prevent in case you skip on a rock that's just under the surface? Um, that's pretty true. Again, you know, you know I, 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 lakes probably have to be, and I'm sure you know the U.S. Forest Service, the Canadian version of the. Forest Service, the Outback, you know, I'm sure they have all these lakes mapped with depth and everything. So pilots probably have them in a flight plan. Say, okay, we're fighting a fire in this region, but we can only pull water from, there's 10 lakes here, but we can only pull water from four of them because they meet the criteria for scooping water via aircraft, you know? That's true. Yeah. You know, I never actually thought about that. That's a good point. Again, again, let us know. Like, uh, do the like? Uh, is there any procedures or engineering behind the planes that you that are currently in flight that prevent them from accidentally hitting something or ingesting something that's not what they're trying to get from the lake or the body of water they're trying to have? Yeah, you know, that's a good. That's a good one. And uh, another side note: since we're talking about this, since we mentioned uh, there are some heavies out there like the DC-10 that can dump twelve thousand gallons of water or fire water fire retardant mix in under eight seconds that's a lot of damn water in such a short period of time man that's like a waterfall you know you can imagine <laughs> mm-hmm. and what's the optimal airspeed uh for scooping on the water Dude. you know so you're not going too fast and too slow 
right? Yeah. That's pretty good. Hmm. These, again, like if you're out there and you're hearing this, like I'm sorry if we sound like so incoherent about this, but again, like these are fields that we're just not accustomed to. And by all means, like if you want to educate us more on this, uh, especially with some of the questions that MVP was asking uh, or myself were asking, please, by all means, fi- uh, filter that into us. And then we can revisit and make a whole another episode this is where we deep dive just a little bit either on <clears throat> each element of the aerial firefighting or at least uh, one aspect of it. Like these are what the helicopters do. These are what the heavies do. These are what the, the ground to air crew do. Stuff like that. Please, by all means, hit us up. And if there is a parachuting mechanic, we would definitely, at least, at least old MVP here would definitely like to hear your perspective on things. Right. <laughs> <clears throat> please tell us like is it really does it sound cool is it worth is it uh more work than it's made for you know like or there's a yeah. whole lot of training that you just you don't get to utilize as often because i've done that too where you you over train and you don't touch half the stuff that you've been trained to do yeah and uh is there a way to check ride with you even though you're a slightly overweight bearded guy I'll race you to the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> Gravity's on my side. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm a I'm a pretty heavy set individual myself. So. Like I'm late, I made a lead man. It's harder. <laughs> Dense. Yep, that's exactly it. Uh shift shifting a little bit. Uh, again, like we were talking about the seasonals. Um, like especially in some areas where like it's hot during the day but then it's like like a 30 40 degree temperature swing at night and we, we've had these <clears> issues before ourselves where like we would prep for a flight in the daytime and we'd almost have to cut the flight before it turns dark because all the uh all the weather conditions would shift so greatly that whatever it took off with it's gonna give it that much more problems on the way back um this this sounds pretty far fetched, but this is some of the issues that we've actually dealt with, especially with smaller planes. Oh yeah, uh, like uh, during the daytime, if it's taking off in the afternoon, say, it would have to almost land that same within four hours of taking off, or like just thirty minutes past sunset because the temperature <laughs> would swing so much, and then uh, the all, the fluids inside it will start to congeal, or the tires will be uh, under serviced. Yep. Yeah, so like we've had we've had checks in the wintertime where you know you have to service tires. Uh normally it's service tires, you know, no sooner than uh uh six hours, or excuse me, no later than no sooner than no later than. Anyways, six hours uh before takeoff or sooner. That was the standard. Now in the wintertime, because of that. It changed to three yeah. on some aircraft. You had to service them three hours prior to takeoff, just to ensure they be. <clears throat> well, since nitrogen, though, you know, it doesn't mess around. Doesn't change too much, but it does change a little. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was that was the rules implemented by the or the 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 standards implemented by engineering. Um, if the plane was going to, we had ones where if the planes were going to take off before eight or nine a.m., you had to wipe down the wings uh, with glycol yep. to keep ice from forming up or sticking to the wings. Um, we've had 
Uh, we've had ones you know, six was talking about the oil. Oil congeals up, so your 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 warm up times are that much more. Or we've had to do it where we've had to jump on there, do a engine run prior to the air crew stepping uh, within a certain amount of time, just to make sure the oil was semi warm to start up um, because it would just be so thick. Now I know we talked to some of the girls at Elevate about this, and I know six I've talked to you about it. But there's a book out there called Bent props and blow pots it's about canadian bush flying back in the back in the uh, turn of the like 1930s i want to say yep and you know remote villages as it still is in some some cases today you can only access by uh, aircraft so mail food everything has flown in well you know who's fixing those planes uh, well, a, a flying mechanic. So you had your pilot, and then you had all your cargo in the back, and laying on top of that cargo was one mook with a tool bag, and uh, and he went wherever that aircraft went, and when it broke, you know that, that he was there, he was it, he was it. Come hell or high water, that plane had to fly. So they talk about landing on frozen lake beds when they had engine trouble, or he got into a snow squall and had to. Uh, find an open patch of somewhere but buried under the snow might be trees rocks whatever and you and you'd bend your prop and they would have to wedge the propeller take the propeller blade off now these are fixed bits mind you take the propeller blade off wedge it between two rocks and use your own weight as leverage to bend it back into semi original shape that and a hammer um but the blow pot aspect getting back to the the cold weather and the oil the blow pot was kerosene, uh, kerosene fuel and like a five gallon metal bucket. And on the bottom, you'd light the kerosene, it would heat the bucket. So when you landed, you had to drain the oil right away into the bucket when it was still warm. So it would drain out before it congealed. Yep. Now, yep. again, mind you, this is 1930s oil technology. So not, not as good as the stuff we have today by any stretch of the words, but, uh, you know, prior to takeoff, the pilot, uh, the mechanic, excuse me, the mechanic would have to go out there, light the, light the kerosene, warm that oil up, uh, and then pour it back into the motor. And then the pilot would be right there on standby to crank the motor before the oil congealed again. And that's Think about that. That's, that's, that's some crazy maintenance stuff back then. And that's some craziness though, man. Yeah, exactly. You said, and we may not have to do that sort of stuff with today's uh, uh, oil-based products. But it's still a mindful thing to understand, like, does the oil you have in your, in your aircraft, are they rated to have that kind of a temperature swing? Because most times, you know, they'll, they'll have that temperature swing, but it can only do it for so long, right? Yeah. Like, if you're just transitioning from one place to another with that kind of weather swing, then no big deal as long as you're landing and it's relatively stable. But you'll have some places, like some where we've been, the temperatures would swing so fast or so much daily that we'd have to like almost switch out the oil weights just to make, just to keep them all together or keep them from uh, swinging, being too viscous when it's hot or being too loose when it's cold, whichever the case may be. Uh, and then likewise with uh, the flight controls or the struts, like they don't like being in cold weather at all. Mm-hmm. And some of them, they tend to bind when it gets cold. Or it it doesn't perform as well because even then they have a temperature range too. 
or more like an operating range. So like uh, in some aircraft, I think a lot of general aviation ones too, like they will have to sit there and kind of do like a run and do flight checks for a certain period of time just to kind of warm them up so they don't uh, bind or or uh, get restricted in whatever way. And then likewise with the struts, because yeah, the tires, they have nitrogen for uh, to fill them up, but then the struts themselves, you know, they're most of them are hydraulically uh, driven. So if they, if the, if the struts are not serviced properly or they're not meant for that kind of cold, then they're just going to stiffen up and it's going to be just like, like landing, like landing on us on a broomstick, really. <laughs> it's, uh, <clears throat> it's interesting. Um, I know, you know, somebody said, well, the struts don't like the cold. Well, how the hell do they operate when you're coming down from altitude? Well, a lot of aircraft, you know, will will take some bleed air from your end two of the engine and they'll port it down to your wheel wells. Now, your wheel wells might not be, you know, sunny San Diego at 75 degrees, but instead of being the negative 40 degrees outside, maybe it's only zero in the bay or something like that. You know, it just, it takes the, takes the edge off of them a little bit. Yes, very true. Oh, another one too, uh, since we're going about, uh, cold weather or the season swing is fuel. Um, fuel itself, like uh, once it gets so cold, it starts to turn into kerosene or it starts to turn gel-like. Well, I guess kerosene would be the way. Dip, but not, so you're talking about dipping tanks? Yeah. So yeah. like, uh, so like they're, they almost turn gel-like or sticky as they, as it gets so cold. Like they, uh, I think a lot of uh, jet fuel nowadays, they're rated for a certain swing, but most of them, there's like, I don't know, JP five style uh, fuel or avgas however you guys want to swing it but it's meant for like a certain range between like like 30 degrees to about 100 something but um if it's if it's such a sw- um a seasonal swing or if it gets so cold then the the fuel starts to turn the gel like and it'll actually clog your fuel injectors if it's a fuel injected plane that is if it's not carbureted i think carbureted will probably be worse but it will start to jam up your 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 fuel system so then that, that goes into making sure that the fuel is, the, is for the right temperature or for the right season and then also doing uh, fuel injector inspections or fuel system inspections to ensure that there's nothing clogging the system because we've had this happen before where like um the, f- the fuel would start to clog and then it'll, it'll cause like valves or or uh, certain systems to not operate right because it requires that constant fuel flow to be unrestricted or you actually have like over overheats in certain areas with say oil, for instance, because it's supposed to be changing, exchanging the heat between the fuel and the, and the, all the other uh, warmer systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like, again, like, I mean, most mechanics will know this, but say like, if you're in the general aviation side, you own your own plane, there's things you have to be familiar with. And I'm sure there's courses and whatnot that kind of give you basic uh, mechanic steps, but it's a lot of stuff that tends to get overlooked because it's, yeah, you're talking about fuel. I mean, even think about your old carbureted and how you have to adjust the the jetting for that. <clears throat> but even with fuel injected, uh, you still got to check your high and low pressure sides of your fuel rail just to ensure that the cold temperatures uh, they're 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 flowing fuel properly for cold temperatures. Yep, and I I think I mentioned already like some the valves will get stuck or they'll they'll jam because of that that a uh, sudden swing in temperature or that sudden swing in season. Um, again, like if you're a general aviation person and you own your own aircraft, this is gen- stuff that you should be familiar with. 
And if you don't pl- consult like your your nearest uh, certified mechanic or your your um, manufacturers, your aircraft manufacturers spec um, about what's ideal for the areas you're in and what sort of operating temps it's supposed to be at. Because we've seen this too, even for people who are air quote knowledgeable, they they don't they tend to go against the manufacturer's recommendations because it's cheaper, right? Or they're trying to cut costs because they want to get more flight time, and that wears into the systems a lot faster than what it's recommended. Yeah, you might spend more, but it's also extending the longevity of your system or your yep. aircraft. <laughs> Same for your battery, right? Cold weather is really rough on batteries. Yes. And uh, I want to now correct me if I'm wrong, but I think uh, batteries will discharge faster mm-hmm. when it's colder. Yeah, is correct. That's another thing that gets missed too. And I've, I've seen times too where if it's cold, it starts to get a little bit more moist in certain areas. So you'll see like There's a uh, bunch of people listening right now that just heard you say that. I'm like, yeah, moist, <laughs> moisty, moist, <laughs> humid. Okay, okay, humid. That's the. Uh, it starts to get more humid in the in those compartments, so you start to see little corrosion spots on the on the batteries or the terminals of the batteries. And there were times too where it was like, "How the hell is this thing corroding?" And it, but it, it it's dry as a bone where we're at. But where the place it's operating at, since it's so cold and they're so high up, they fly by clouds and all this stuff, and they absorb all that moisture. And then uh, avionics equipment themselves generate moisture. So. Yes, but like I think batteries, especially, get so overlooked because they think, oh, whatever, it starts, roll it, right? Or they think because uh, now that the aircraft's running on alternator power or generator power, that the battery kicks off, but it's still operating to some extent. You know what I mean? Yep. Now, that fun- I do. The funny part is when you start seeing thermal runaway in a cold environment. <laughs> that shit is fucking funny. Yeah, how is this happening? How? How? Like everywhere else is like like thirty thirty and below, but then your battery compartment is like plus five hundred. And my batteries, the engine bay is uh, really warm right now. <laughs> there. I I remember uh, uh, going a little off topic. I remember uh, one of my instructors and he was telling me like the symptoms of a thermal runaway is like just think of it like the worst STD you could ever imagine getting. It looks bad. It smells bad. It starts to hiss, and then it, it starts to warp. I'm like, that sounds disgusting. Like, is that is that what I'm looking for? Uh, like, I show up to a plane and it's like this giant freaking case of herpes. Fest, you know, <laughs> festering, festering case of fe- feline AIDS. Yeah, you know, or like the clap. You know what I mean? Just like aircraft clap. I'm like, Ugh. God, you all. I just gross myself out. Uh, huh? <laughs> <laughs> gross. But yeah, night, night batteries are no joke, especially when they thermal run away. And just because it's cold doesn't mean they won't do it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, uh, I'm sorry, everybody. I'm stuck on the plane, plane herpes. It's <laughs> a fucking plane clap. God damn it. These guys. <laughs> I picture- I'm picturing that, right? You know, like, uh, like here comes a doctor. He's he's coming up to a plane. He like claps the pedo tube, and all comes like the freaking Yuck. all the nasties, all the nasties. Like, ooh, ooh. I can't believe that's a you know that's a way to test the symptom. You know what I mean? Go, going off track on that one. Like, yeah, well, they just clap that area, and if it pusses, then yeah, like, that's, there's got to be a better way than that. <laughs> it's freaking gross. <laughs> 
Well, I'm sure there is, but I'm just, I'm just saying like that was like the old moniker that people used to tell me and it still grosses me out even today. <laughs> Disgusting. <laughs> but general aviation people out there, like what sort of preventative measures do you use once the temperature starts to swing towards the colder months? Right. Yeah, do you guys wipe your wings with glycol? Is there anything a special film you put over the windscreen? Um, you know, is there secondary checks you do to make sure your pedo heat's working? Static port uh, heat's working. Um, do you like to, you know, kind of heat the small hangar space you're in? Let's say you have just one of those small tent hangers that, that don't really have any environmental controls, but do you like to throw a little one of those propane heaters in there for about an hour or so before you're going to pull it out just to kind of warm things up slightly? You know, um, anything you got to do with your nav equipment? You know, is there anything you need to do? Is there an additional checklist you have to follow, your pre flight checklist for cold temperatures? Yes. Oh, and one of those addendums for the cold weather. Oh, likewise, because I know for larger organizations, they cut their inspections or their scheduled inspections in half, uh, depending on the cold and the environment they're in. Uh, as a general practice for general aviation peeps, do you guys do something similar, right? Or is it just kind of like, I know my plane, I know what it needs and, you know, just kind of ride it? Well, yeah, because <laughs> I mean, we can all, we all know some of them small Cessnas and beach grass and things are barn builds, man. And those maintenance manuals are, well, they're just about as thorough as a, a children's book, you know, <laughs> it, 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 it leaves it vague and open to the imagination. Like man, service. super gray, super gray areas in there. Right. Like make service. sure your tolerances are 0. 0.05 to 0. 0.07. But if you find them outside of, of either of those numbers, Use best judgment. <laughs> uh, what? <laughs> or, or it's like service aircraft every 25 flight hours. Okay, okay. Service what though? What, what am I doing? <laughs> yes. 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 <laughs> service the everything. <laughs> do I just take this in for an overhaul? What do I do? Yes. Uh, shite. <laughs> I'm sure there's probably a lot of general aviation people like, what the fuck are these two talking about? They don't yeah. do anything yeah, like idiots. that. <laughs> it's way more in depth. Well, you might be right. You, you might be right. But then again, like uh, it's been a hot minute or two since we've done anything with Cessnas or Beechcraft. Most of the stuff we talk about or we've. Yeah, but you know what? Even up to a oh, 20, 15, 16 time frame, I was working brand new Beechcrafts back then. And they had less than 200 hours on them, and we had to gut the interiors to get to the ECS lines because from the factory, Beechcraft thought it would be cool to just tape the lines together. So we had to do a mod because they were all melting. The tape was melting, and these lines were popping off and falling apart. Uh, a mod with that like rubber orange neoprene tube and, and band clamps. Oh, my God. That was the mod from from OEM, and you're like, I mean, better than the tape, but like, who thought the tape was a good idea? And, and we all know, right? Money saving efforts. Well, we saved, uh, we charged, you know, ten million for the aircraft, and we saved thirty five cents uh, per uh, per connection. So, uh, 
yay us. Right. Only to go turn around and spend fucking however much money on the mod. But hey, our customers got to pay for that mod. So longevity, right? <laughs> or job security. Job security. Job security, yeah. <laughs> barn builds, man. That's what they are. Yep. Yeah. Uh, there's some barn builds I've seen, man. Like they are some really cool stuff, man. And kudos to those people who who can barn build like that and actually get it into such a pristine condition because we've seen some that were very hodgepodge like DIY gone wrong kind of stuff. I'm like, how is this thing flying? <laughs> yeah, but then there was a guy at one of the last places where we worked and he he was like, hey, I'll take you guys up and uh, take you for a flight and this and that. We're like, oh, okay, cool. And then somebody else walks by, like, you don't want to fly with him. He's crashed like seven times. <laughs> what? How's he still flying? Well, he's got his own little uh, experimental that he built in his garage. He likes to take it up. I was like, yeah, it sounds like he he slams a 12 pack, decides to work on his gr- in his garage till 3 a.m. and then try to take it out and fly at seven. And it sounds fun. It, it's kind of like with guys who work on their drag racer. You know what I mean? Like they blow like 90% of their income just to change out a single part. You know what I mean? <laughs> yep. Oh, that's bad. We're not eating for six months, but I can go faster. <laughs> I can fly higher in the, which is like not that much higher. It's probably like 10 feet. In a range of like a thousand to ten thousand feet, (laughs) 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 but sorry for for all you guys barn building out there, man. Like if that's not you, we the shoe doesn't fit. Don't wear it. But there we have the shoe fit. If the shoe does fit, well, try to be a little bit better. Yeah, we seen some, and they were just like real hodgepodge. Like again, DIY gone wrong, and just like yeah, man. Uh, gonna well. Do you want it fixed or do you want it flying? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> if we get it fixed, it'll be down for about six months and it'll cost you about $400,000. Or it can get it flying for about $12. <laughs> I still love that video, man. <laughs> one of the best. It is one of the best. Uh, you showed me one the other day where I was talking about preventative maintenance. <laughs> oh, yeah. I have to go back and watch that. That was hysterical. Preventative maintenance? <laughs> What? <laughs> yeah, well, can you show me like the records where we've been doing preventative maintenance on these machines? What are you talking about? We usually, he's like, oh yeah, we do preventative maintenance. Okay, can you show me the records? Well, well, preventative maintenance is we we run these things at, at full blast until they break and then we fix them. But I gotta be honest with you, it's just cheaper to buy a new one. <laughs> <laughs> In some cases, yes. In some cases, yes. Like that, I've I found it faster to just get a whole new one than to get it fixed. And the sap that's kind of sad if you think about it. But in some cases, yeah, it, it is cheaper to to just replace it than to fix it. And you might even get it faster because you're ordering the whole assembly or whatever the case may be. Yeah. Keep <laughs> keep imagine that man. <laughs> no, I can't. People are just like, what the fuck? What? <laughs> yeah, we broke this, so we decided to throw the whole thing away and go buy a new one. Oh, okay. But, you know, that's at some point it comes that way with aircraft because you go, look, this thing's so old that to mod it to fit current flight requirements as outlined by the FAA would would cost just as much or more than it would be to go purchase a an equivalent new model, you know, right? That's kind of like that's kind of like saying like, 
you bought a $20,000 plane or a car or whatever, and then you throw in $60,000 worth of mods, it's still $20,000, or it's still only worth $20,000. You just did $60,000 worth of work. Now, you could have one that has all those mods, all those jiffies, brand new for $80,000. Would you still buy it or would you just go with the $20,000 and think like, oh, well, $60,000 worth of mods is not that bad. <laughs> it's so funny how like uh, some, people's, uh, some people's purchasing minds work. I'm like, but you're throwing the same amount of money. I mean, and it's more new and it's already built in versus you having to put it in. But I guess some right. people like to really do it DIY. So, I mean, no harm, no foul on their part as long as they do it right, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> just, just that what that first 100 hours is going to be real sketchy, you know what I mean? Like You take it to the MRO and to the nearest repair station, like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> the IA is going to look at him like, yeah, you don't come here again. <laughs> look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and give you this uh, denial certificate and suggest that I'm going to give you, go ahead and cut you this ferry permit. Why? Well, I'm going to suggest you ferry this to the closest scrapyard. <laughs> start over. <laughs> start over. Like, do you feel violated? Well, you should have. <laughs> you should, yeah. For, for $80,000. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. Terrible, terrible. Uh, last minute go-backs or readdresses MVP? Uh, no, nothing really. Nothing really from my end. Just like to hear a little bit more about our uh, listeners and what their knowledge is of the firefighting stuff and then what you guys kind of do additionally for cold weather. And I know our Canadian friends got a lot more cold weather to deal with than we do. So I'm sure they'll have uh, bokus of information to uh, bestow upon us. Yeah, most dev. Please do. If if all of you listen out there, if you have something to add to this or you'd like us to explore more, uh, you have the info for us, please shoot it our way, whichever way is easiest for you. Uh, social medias, our email, Discord, whichever ways is fastest, more efficient, most efficient for you. We'll get we'll take a look at it and we'll explore deeper and possibly make another episode of it. And likewise, from our previous episode, we mentioned like if you guys would like any hot tips some advice, uh, how to's, please let us know. We can work with you individually. We can work at, we can kind of turn this into its own episode and just kind of break those up or even like a private lesson episode kind of thing on discord, whichever way. Yeah. Mentorships, coaching, whatever you need, whichever way is the most effective way we get enough of it. We can totally just turn this into like its own webinar, which we can host on discord or something like that. We'll figure it away. But again, like, we're always open to help uh, lend the information. We're always open to receive it too. So whichever, again, is easiest for you. And then likewise, uh, if you like all you're hearing, please uh, send us reviews, subscribe, uh, join us on Patreon. Like again, as low as like a dollar per month to be on our Discord and support us, whichever way is easiest. And then also you can check out our comics, which we've made mention a couple of times throughout the show and in all our previous episodes. We got some more coming along on Tapas. Um, just got episodes lined up. And if there's any suggestions you guys have for us as far as what kind of episodes or comics you would like to see, send us again a line. We'll, we'll accommodate in some way, shape, or form. And on that note, we appreciate you all for listening. And we'll catch you again next time. Bye, everybody. We would like to take this time to thank our patrons 
for supporting our show and allowing us to make episodes, maintain our gear, and create merch for all of our listeners. With special thanks to Erica Lamont, Chris Hawkins, Dan Schubert, Ryan Frushauer, Kyle Keir, Caleb Stockhill, Jenny Dignan, and Jennifer Brofer. Thank you all so much for your support and patronage. If you like our show, please support us on Patreon. You'll receive awesome perks such as access to our private Discord, discounts on and early access to merch, first glimpse of our comics and other projects, and so much more. Visit our shop at cancelformainness.com and grab some swag to show off both your support for us and your prowess as an aircraft technician. If you have suggestions for the show or have a guest recommendation to be on the show, send us a line on our contact us section at our website and do, we will do what we can to get your ideas and or your recommendations on the show. You can also follow us on social media, such as on Facebook at Cancel for Maintenance, Instagram at Kanks, that's C-A-N-X for Maintenance Podcast, Twitter at CXMX Podcast, and now you can catch us on Tapas where you can view our latest comics. Check out our affiliate, RockwellTime.com, for watches and eyewear that support both your sporty and classy lifestyles. Use the code CX4MX, that's the number 4MX, to save 10% off your total purchase. Thank you all again for your listenership and support, and we will see you all next time.